Widow's Run by T.G. Wolfe. Diamond. One name for a woman with one purpose in life. It should have been ordinary, her husband attending a scientific conference, except he didn't come home. A random accident, or was it? A video surfaces calling facts into questions, but the police only have words of sympathy for the new widow. Resurrecting her CIA cover, Diamond goes where the police won't. From Washington, D.C., to Rome, Italy, to Tulsa, Oklahoma, her widow's run follows the stink greed leaves in its wake. Murder is a filthy business. Good thing Diamond likes to play dirty. Widow's Run, the first, in the, the first book in the trilogy by T.G. Wolfe, is available everywhere you get your books. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolfe, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be original stories. Others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes. This is season four, A Word Before Dying. This season contains original stories written just for you and built around that classic mystery theme of the last word before dying. Episode five is about pride and prejudice. This is No Luck Like Bad Luck by T.G. Wolfe. Every woman has her price. Ten seconds. I ignored the time call. All I could do was trigger an adrenaline rush that would cloud my mind and shake my hands. Seven seconds. I had this. I'd done it a hundred times. Of course, that was years ago, but the mind remembers. All I had to do was four seconds. Damn it, Dixon, I snapped. Stop shouting in my ear. I'm trying to concentrate in here. I don't need you to poof. That sound you just heard was the training bomb blowing up a cloud of flour, dusting everything in the room. This was embarrassing. I was Diamond, the woman who single-handedly made a contingent of Italian marauders believe Pompeii had come back to life. Yet here I was, in my own kitchen, wearing the proof of my failure. Or should I say the poof of my failure as it was? Maybe flour wasn't a good idea. Those words of wisdom came from Andrew Dixon, the 17-year-old IT genius with ambiguous morals who took over the apartment across from mine in May. He was also the fool who didn't know to keep his mouth shut and not disrupt the woman disarming a bomb. Maybe next time, my more creative suggestion was cut off by the buzzer masquerading as my doorbell. Visitor, Dixon said, jumping to his feet like an unexpected guest was a good thing. I horse-collared him, pulling him behind me. My house. I went to my kitchen window, opened it, took out the screen, and looked three floors down. You looking for someone? The woman at the side entrance to my apartment building took two steps back and tilted her head up. 
She was wearing a suit meant for a pricier rent district and shoes that lived up to the stiletto tradition. I'm looking for Diamond. I'm a client. No, you're not, I said. Diamond doesn't have clients. She's not for hire. Dixon's head appeared in the window next to mine. Yes, she is, but she's not cheap. The woman looked over my building, taking in the 12 apartments. I'll wager my net worth is triple that of this building and everyone living in it. Coolio, come on up. Dixon's head disappeared back inside. Seconds later came the buzz that unlocked the gate to the cast iron stairs. Dixon, I said, pulling my head back in, my voice dangerously low. I make the decisions here, not you. I know, he said, totally dismissing my tone. You always say no at first, and then when you hear the story, you want in. This one has the money to pay us. He turned his back on me, going down the long hallway that led to the back door. Top floor, he shouted down. Does this building have an elevator, the woman called back? Nope. I'm Dixon. I'm Clarice Wedgworth. Is, is that flower in your hair? Dixon was half black, half Japanese. His hair was long, straight, and normally jet black. Yep, come on in. My hair is short and the color of a good dark chocolate bar, or it was when not covered in failure. I'm Diamond, I said when she walked through the door, and I repeat, I'm not for hire. Oh please, she said, digging into her Gucci purse. Everyone is for hire. I have a referral. She held out a small mint green envelope. I took it and opened it, ready to dismiss it. But damn it, I couldn't. What is with everyone calling in IOUs these days? Has everyone forgotten the implied implication that it will never be repaid? Let me see, Dick said, swiping the card from my hand. Trixie, you do owe her after everything she did for you in Scotland. I glared at the woman, Clarice Wedgworth. My debt, if there is one, which there isn't, is to Trixie. Someone's trying to kill me, she said. There have been at least three attempts on my life. I have a feeling there's gonna be another this weekend. My husband and I are hosting a leadership retreat for Wedgworth industry executives. I have this feeling that if I go, I won't come back. Don't go, I said. Simple problem, simple solution. The woman gave me a stare that would stop the devil. You aren't a stupid woman. I gave it right back. And you must be a lawyer. I recognize that look, the one you have to perfect until you're qualified to sit for the bar. What do you want us to do, Dixon said, interrupting our witty banter. Clarice didn't take her eyes from mine. Come with me as my guest. Investigate. Be my bodyguard. The event is in Cozumel, Mexico at an all-inclusive resort. Give me four days, and when you're done, regardless of what you're fined, I'll pay. Dixon was behind her, nodding like a bobblehead doll, and then he pointed at himself and did the worst possible impression of a mime packing for a trip. Of course, Clarice said, the offer extends to your, um, associate. Five minutes later, Clarice was seated in my living room, telling us her sob story. I met my husband about 18 months ago. I was deposing him for a lawsuit brought against his company. Middle of it, he asks me out. I told him no and that distracting me wasn't going to work. He asked me if I would say yes if he agreed to settle. I called his bluff but he wasn't bluffing. Six months later, we were married. My life since has been a whirlwind, 
but then that's my husband, Richard Wedgworth. Wait, Dixon said, isn't he the guy building his own rocket to go to space? Clarice nodded. One of them, yes. He's filthy rich and a mean old son of a bitch when he isn't being generous and sweet. He has three adult children, one by each of his ex-wives. One of them is trying to kill me. The kids or the wives, I asked. Exactly, she said sharply. Five women and one little Richard. I stood in the Cozumel Resort's mission-style atrium that would host the night's event. The center held a trickling fountain and was open to the sky above. Surrounding us was a two-story, circular building. The bottom floor was the check-in, resort gift shop, a bar, and the entrance to one of the many restaurants. Dixon walked backwards around the space, looking at everything. We aren't in D.C. anymore. Did you see that? I think it was a lizard. I grabbed Dix by the arm, saving him from an intimate encounter with a potted succulent. Eyes where you're going, Dix. The reception is here in this atrium at sunset. Richard will give a speech from this fountain about an hour later, with Clarice at his side. It's a lot of space to cover for the two of us. I led him to the alcove between the check-in and the bar, where a grand sweeping staircase climbed to the second floor. I brought the cameras and, and the Wi-Fi here is solid, Dick said as we began to climb. We'll be able to see everything, Diamond. Do you really think someone's going to try to kill Clarice this weekend? I'm not even sure if the attempts on her life are real, I said. But you let, us, you let her hire us, so we have to be ready for it. Well, if they do, he said, I hope they wait until Sunday. He topped the stairs and stepped into the large reception area. This is awesome. The upper level was a large room with double doors every 10 feet that spilled out to a wraparound veranda. It was a grand space with a king's view of the fountain and surrounding area below. Cozumel is beautiful, I said, but remember, we're working. I've plucked Clarice on the do's and don'ts. She's going to introduce me as an old college friend and you're my nephew. You know what to do. He nodded. Look bored? Find a private corner? Monitor the security feeds? Signal you if anything looks wonky. After Dix and I worked with the resort's decorator during the heat of the day, bugging the plants and decor with digital eyes, we needed a shower and gallons of water. The third floor of Building 20 had the Royal Suite, occupied Clarice and her husband Richard, and a standard room Dix and I shared. I pulled rank and showered first, dressing in a breezy summer dress with the linen jacket that hid my shoulder holster. A smaller pistol sat high on my thigh. I left Dixon to what was left of the hot water and joined my clients via an adjoining door. The main room of their suite was a spacious living and dining areas with tile floors, tall ceilings, and strong fans. Richard stood across the way, his chin lifted while his wife fixed the collar of his polo shirt. I just can't believe someone I know and trust would do something like this, he said. Clarice wore a white dress, sleeveless, but with a high collar. She turned her head, acknowledging my entrance, then looked back to her husband. I hear you, love. 
but that shellfish didn't swim its way into my fettuccine on its own. Also, the car that ran up on the sidewalk only missed me by inches, and that mugger watched a dozen people pass by before he leapt out at me. The day before each of those events, I had a tough conversation with one of your kids. I might be paranoid, but it doesn't mean I'm wrong. How about bad luck, he said, taking his wife's hand in his, kissing her knuckles. It happens to everyone from time to time. A heavy hand knocked on the front door. I stepped in front of Clarice and Richard, raising my gun to the open door in front of me. Dad, I bought a bottle of champagne, a woman said in a sing-song voice. My oldest, Richard said, pressing my arms down. I turned to Clarice, holstering my weapon. Remember, you don't eat or drink anything unless it comes from me. She nodded as Richard opened the door and a pink hurricane made landfall. Surprise! I had 10 cases shipped in for tonight. The woman in pink pumps and a coordinated dress suit kissed her father's cheek. Then Clarice en route to the bar. Let's have a... Who's this? Ricky, I told you I invited a friend of mine, Clarice said. This is Anna Rundle. We went to law school together. I gritted through the stupid alias Dixon had picked for me. Lose a stupid bet and the next thing you know, you're answering to the name of a Maryland county. Ricky Edgeworth was in her mid-forties and happily divorced. Intel said she dropped her husband's name the day she caught him in bed with a woman half their age. She was an executive vice president in her father's company and had the air of someone not to be challenged. Her hair, like her taste in clothes, was stuck in the 1980s. Big blonde hair teased away from a face accented with blue eyeshadow and glossy lipstick. Ricky openly assessed me the way women do to each other. Anna Rundle, huh? You don't look like a lawyer. I get that a lot, I said, offering my hand. You work with your father? I'm the oldest son he never had, she said, sliding four flutes from the overhead storage rack. Started in the mailroom when I was 14. I'm at the office more than I'm home. My husband used to complain about my hours, but we worked it out. She grinned, which made her much more likable. Now he has the trophy life he always wanted, and I have his trust fund. She handed me a glass, which I passed to Clarice, but shook my head, silently telling her not to drink. Then Richard and I took the remaining two. Here's two win-wins, Ricky said, and drank from her glass. A soft knock sounded at the main doors. It's probably Emily, Ricky said, tipping her chin toward the door. My sister won't show up at her own funeral if somebody doesn't send an invitation. Not tonight, Ricky, her father said as I went to the door. This is supposed to be a party. A slim brunette holding a bottle of wine smiled and then frowned. Who are you? Anne, I said. I'm a friend of Clarice's. Right, law school, she said walking past me. Then she stopped short. Ricky, I told you I was bringing wine. Ricky refilled her glass, ignoring the attitude being thrown in her direction. And I told you this was a champagne kind of night. Girls, their father said, stepping between his daughters. We are about to host a party. Put the claws away. Emily hurried across the room, bottle in hand. I brought a bottle of your favorite, she said, kissing her father's cheek and then Clarice's. Emily Wedgworth looked like a librarian dressing up as a corporate executive. Her style of clothing could best be described as dowdy. The offspring of Wedgworth's second marriage, 
Emily is in her late 30s. After an abbreviated culinary career that included two years abroad, she went back to school, earned an MBA, and was now Chief Financial Officer at Wedgworth Industries. I don't want you to worry, Dad, she said. I worked all afternoon with the resort's head chef to polish the dishes. You are going to love them. Oh, God, Emily, Ricky said, refilling her glass. When are you going to stop with the I know everything about food line? Emily sneered. When are you going to realize Pretty in Pink is a movie and not a fashion trend? That is not what... Another knock sounded at the door, and Clarice hurried to answer it. I intercepted her, forcing her behind me. This time, a man in his early 30s stood on the other side. He looked like he'd stumbled to the door after rolling on the beach, a piece of palm frond stuck in his hair. He frowned, checked the room number, then frowned some more. You're not my sister. And you're no rocket scientist. No, I'm Anne, a friend of Clarice's. You must be Richard. I stood back, opening the door wide. Little Richard, he corrected, stepping into the room to his siblings' disapproval. Little Richard was the youngest, his mother being the most recent ex-Mrs. Wedgworth. He inherited his father's profile and general shape, but with a belt line a good 12 inches smaller than his father's. Little Richard held the title of vice president of nothing in particular. Emily rolled her eyes. Couldn't you try just a little? We're at a resort, he said. This is a beach party. You look like you're ready for a board meeting, he said to Emily, and then turned to Ricky. And you look like you're expecting a visit from Doc from Back to the Future. A full-on squabble broke out. The siblings slashed at each other, then ran to their father, some literally, some proverbially, for cover. Richard looked at his wife, who gave him the classic, they're your kids, not mine, dismissal, and came to join me. Impressed yet, Clarice asked. Are they always like this? I asked. Clarice nodded. Individually, they're nice enough. Together, they put the D in dysfunctional. Another knock at the door. Little Richard was closest, but left it to Emily to open. Mommy, she said, as three women poured in. Emily hugged the one who looked like her. The ex-Mrs. Wedgworths moved as one amorphous body. They were pretentious, overdone, and bejeweled. Why do his ex-wives hang around, I asked Clarice. Money, she said. Whenever you have a question like that, the answer is always money. Fair enough, I said. So why do you put up with it? She shrugged. Everyone comes with baggage. Richard's is just more perfume than most. They're no threat to my marriage, which eats the hell out of them, especially Ricky's mom. Divorce was Richard's idea, not hers. I don't think she's fully accepted he has moved on. The trio oozed our way. Hello, Clarice, they said in three-part harmony. Their collective gazes raked over my client before rendering opinions. The airline must have damaged her luggage, Emily's mother said. Your dress is half missing. As a shot, it fell impotently to the floor. Clarice's dress was first class. Even I knew it. The ex-wives, now and forever known as the former Mrs. Wedgeworth, giggled at the attempted slight as they slaunted across the room to pay homage to their benefactor. How handsome you look, Richard. That print takes 30 pounds of you, Richard. Little bit of sun makes you glow, Richard. I cut their allowance, Clarice said quietly. They used their children as a conduit to Richard's wallet. They aren't fooling him, but he wasn't going to stop it. They are his children's mothers, and at one point, questionable though his judgment may have been, 
He loved them. Fortunately for him, I don't have that handicap. Did you make a Silence of the Lamb joke in there? They all in, lo- in unison said, hello, Clarice. <laughs> Did you even mean to do that? No, I didn't mean to do that, but that was pretty awesome. Right, just wondering. <laughs> just wondering. Prove that you are listening. <laughs> the moment you've all been waiting for. At six o'clock, the sun was starting to wind down. Muchos, muchos mojitos had been consumed, and a group of 40 pasty white people and their significant others gathered around the fountain in the atrium. Mexican waiters in their white pants and shirts circulated the crowd offering appetizing morsels. Richard and Clarice Wedgworth worked the room, taking the time to speak personally to each employee, greeting their wives and husbands and the occasional best friend who couldn't believe he got an all-expense-plate weekend in Cozumel. As the third wheel, I saw the couple work the room. They were both very good at making each person feel valued while not being monopolized. Clarice, under my orders, carried a glass of soda water I had given her as a prop. She would occasionally take something from a waiter, only to wrap it in a napkin and discreetly dispose of it. Dixon made an entrance that had people taking notice. The white of his shirt showed off the unique color of his mixed heritage. He had pulled his hair back, which highlighted the almond shape of his eyes and the cut of his cheekbones. Playing his role, Dixon came to me, acting like he'd been asked to run a marathon when he wanted to stay on the couch. He mumbled his thanks to Richard for inviting him and nearly ruined his bored image by almost smiling when Richard suggested he ask the pretty bartender for sex on the beach. Dix left me for his station upstairs on the veranda overlooking the atrium, where a dozen others had migrated for the elevated view. Ricky worked the crowd as well as her father did. People were receptive to her. The key was to watch how they behaved when she walked away. For her, they smiled and nodded. The room didn't have the same appreciation for Emily. She circulated, talking to each person about the food. I could tell by the way she gestured to the plates they held. Everyone agreed the food was delicious, although a few brave souls noted the hand pouring the vinegar had been just a little heavy. I felt bad for Emily. She just tried too damn hard. But she fared far better than little Richard. Most people were reasonably polite to him and when he walked away, muttered the equivalent of boss's kid to their partner. One person mistook him for a waiter, handing him their empty plate, which was not fair to the waiters who were much cleaner and more neatly dressed. The former Mrs. Wedgworth stood together in front of the souvenir shop, holding court. They didn't circulate, but waited for people to come to them, which they did. Likely, they almost have known some of the staff when they were in Clarice's position. Dad, Ricky said, leading the formation of her half-siblings in tow. It's time for your speech and the champagne. Richard laughed. I'm going to buy you stock in that company. He started toward the fountain when his daughter hooked his arm. Dad, let's go up to the balcony, she said. Everyone will be able to see you there. I shook my head, but Richard didn't get the hint. All right, Ricky, he said. Whatever you think is best. Abrupt changes in plan were a security red flag. I swept the stairs ahead of the group, my hand on my weapon as I swept left and right for threats. Behind me, Clarice laughed at something Richard said. His children followed, squabbling for position. In other words, situation normal. We paraded out to the veranda. 
Dixon was in a shaded corner, dutifully staring at his phone. He raised an eyebrow, no noting that us being up there wasn't part of the plan. Richard and Clarice took positions in the small bump out that was made for a speech. Ricky and Emily stood behind and to the side, smiling broadly, but little Richard had disappeared. If I can have your attention, just for a moment, we'll get the speech part of our weekend over with. Richard leaned against the decorative wrought iron, gripping it in his big hands. Friends, thank you so much for joining me and my family for our annual retreat. This one, well, this one is special for having my most trusted staff, my children, and my beautiful Clarice present. I looked for little Richard and found him taking a bottle from the waiter and pouring champagne into five flutes. Then the man, who couldn't be bothered to open the door earlier, carried out the tray and delivered the champagne to his family himself. When you get to be my age, Richard said, you start thinking that more of life is behind you than in front of you. You look back and think, I did good things. There were times I didn't know what I was doing, times I survived on sheer instinct, other times on good luck. This company gave people good jobs and made products that made people's lives easier. I have a lot to be proud of and even more to be th grateful for. When that environmental group sued me, I thought my string of good luck had come to an end. They went ahead and hired a lawyer with a reputation for chewing up and spitting out SOBs like me. Inside of 30 minutes, I knew, Richard grinned at his wife, sometimes there's no luck like bad luck. I love you, sweetheart. Clarice, laughing, pressed her hand to her heart. I love you too. Richard turned back to the crowd. Because of what I just said, I'm happy to announce that I'm stepping down as president and CEO of Wedgworth Industries as of September 1st. A collective gasp rose from the audience. I know this is a shock to everyone, including my family. It had only been in the last few days that the idea took root, and once it did, well, it grew like a tree. I hope everyone here views this as an opportunity to take Wedgworth Industries into the next generation. Everyone raise a glass, Emily shouted, taking one from the tray Little Richard held. Ricky took the glass closest to her. Little Richard handled one to Clarice. Clarice shook her head and lifted her prop glass. Richard turned and took the glass from his son and raised it high. To Wedgworth Industries. To Wedgworth Industries, the crowd echoed, and everyone drank, sipped, and swallowed. Now have a good time, Richard said. That's an order. Then he turned and wrapped his arm around his wife. What do you think of that? You could have told me you were serious about it. Clarice laughed as she wrapped her arms around him. How about I take you to Italy in September? My retirement gift to you. Sounds perfect. Richard cleared his throat, then kissed his wife. Arms around each other, the couple talked to a few people on the veranda who had joined him. Richard opened another button on his shirt, spreading it wide. It's warm out tonight, he said. Let's go downstairs, Clarice said, pulling Richard inside the building. He looks like you got a little too much sun today. Richard went with Clarice, but waved off her concern. But nothing another mojito won't cure. But two steps down the sweeping staircase, he stopped. Richard? Honey? Clarice gripped her husband's arm and then looked back at me, alarmed. Sit him down, I ordered. But it was too late. Richard pitched forward, flopping onto the concrete stairs and then rolling down. Richard! Clarice ran after him and I her. 
Screams rose from the floor below as he came to a rest. He was laid out, head on the last step, body splayed on the tile floor. Blood streaked across his forehead and dripped down his face. Clarice knelt next to him. Richard, oh my God, tell me where you're hurt. Don't try to move, she ordered, catching his arms to still him. Saliva foaming in his mouth, Richard stopped trying to sit up. He was looking into his wife's face, fear in his eyes. His lips opened and closed as he tried to speak. Just be still, Carice told him. Help is coming. Is there a doctor here? She yelled to the room. Call an ambulance. Richard patted her arm, shook his head, and, and almost laughed. Bad luck, he said. Convulsions took him, racking his body, bouncing his head off the step. Clarice cradled him, protecting him, but whatever had him was stronger, and seconds later, Richard Wedgworth died. Scene of the Crime Leaving Clarice with her dead husband, I sprinted back up the stairs. Dixon met me at the top. What happened, he asked, running with me back to the spot where Richard had given his speech. Richard Rudgeworth is dead, I said. Maybe he just fell, but maybe not. Foaming at the mouth is not a symptom of falling, neither are convulsions. A service tray sat on a stand off to the side. One champagne flute was full, four were in differing stages of empty. Give me that napkin, I said, pointing to one lying on the ground. Dixon acted first, asked questions after. You think he was poisoned, that it was in the champagne? But all of them drank it. I know, I said, carefully wrapping the glass, but this is the one little Richard tried to give Clarice. Richard only took it when I stopped her. We'll call Ian. Likely he has a friend here in Mexico who can test this for us. Dixon ran into the building and came back out with more napkins. Maybe we should take them all, he said. If you just test one, you're always going to wonder about the others. I grinned like a proud auntie. There's got to be a back way down from here, I said. Find it and take these to our room. Call Ian and get them working. Then download and review the video. I want to know the movements of the three adult children all night. On it, Dixon said. You go down. I can handle this. I left him to his work and went to the stairs. I stopped at the top, the second step, the same one Richard had stopped on. There was nothing unusual about the top steps. No loose tiles, no chipped concrete, no oil nor grease, nothing to cause a healthy adult to fall. Looking over the railing, I had an unimpeded view of the scene below. Clarice had slid to her hip, still cradling her husband. She wept openly while sirens grew in the background. Across from her was a woman in party attire, the plus one of an employee, a nurse or a medic based on the way she was examining Richard. She said something softly to Cl Clarice and then rose. Clarice wept harder. Emily knelt next to her father and held his hand to her heart. Dad? Wake up, Dad. Sobs racked her body as she begged her dad to come back. Ricky stood over her, her face betrayed a grief without tears. Little Richard sh slowly shook his head. He's not dead. I can see his chest rising. He's, he's just unconscious. Uniforms pro poured in. Hotel, medical, police. The hands determined to help a man beyond help. Clarice stood, overwhelmed to the point of disorientation. For all the people pressing their concern for Richard, Clarice was alone. I went to her, 
not as her hired security, but as a widow reaching out to the newest member of the club. It was a long, sad evening. The police conducted extensive interviews with Clarice, the children, me, and the hotel's management. The rest of the attendees and hotel staff were treated to an abridged conversation. I sat with Clarice as the police summarized their findings. Senora, there's nothing to indicate he fell naturally, Detective Ramirez said gently, but we have questions. We suspect, Senora, that your husband was poisoned, but the how we are still working on. Poisoned? Clarice turned from the officer to me. Richard was murdered. My turn at the facts. I returned to our room in the early hours of the next morning. I had stayed with Clarice until exhaustion had done its job and she fell asleep. Closing the door to the bedroom softly, I walked through our suite's connecting door to find Dixon busy at work. Catch me up, I told him. I met Ian's buddy, Giacomo, down at the pier. Did you know he only has one eye? He said a raccoon scratched it out after he passed out on the beach one night. Will raccoons really do that? I rubbed my forehead, not giving a rat's ass about raccoons. Let's just go with yes, I said. So he has the package? Dixon nodded. He inspected all the glasses and the champagne first. I poured the champagne in a coffee cup and wrapped it with plastic from lunch. He said the champagne was very good but didn't smell like one of the glasses, the one Richard drank from. It was the glass he didn't like, I asked, not the champagne. Giacomo drank most of the champagne, Dixon said. He said he would start working on it as soon as he got home. Since Giacomo didn't like the glass, I focused on it first on the cameras. He brought up a video named Glass. The tray of glasses, he said, was brought up the back stairs by a waiter and set on the stand in the corner. You notice anything? I leaned into the screen, studying the frozen image. There's four glasses there, not five, I said. Where did the fifth come from? Little Richard, he said. When the waiter came later to fill the glasses, see, there's still just four there. Little Richard comes in and he takes the bottle and he blocks the camera right there. But then when he turns around, there's five on the tray. Four around the outside still, but now there's one in the middle. The one he tried to hand to Clarice, I said. Do you have the footage of Richard's speech? Yes, but the angle isn't the best. Dixon opened another file, cleverly named Speech. At twice normal speed, Richard called out to the assembled and made his brief speech. Then Dixon played at normal speed. Everyone raise a glass, Emily shouted, taking one from the tray little Richard held with five flutes. Ricky selected the one closest to her and little Richard then picked up the center glass and offered it to Clarice. When she declined, Richard took the glass from his son's hand. Replay it, I told Dix. This time, you watch little Richard's face and I'll watch Emily's. <coughs> Ricky did it, it was Ricky. We did it again and then once more until we had studied each of the faces of Richard Wedgworth's heirs. What do you think, I asked Dix. Well, there was something wonky with the glass and little Richard knew it, Dixon said. But if you watch them when their father died, you can tell they didn't think that would happen. Not one of them looked 
you know, like, like they won. Maybe they're just really good at acting, I said, playing devil's advocate. Not all three, Dixon said. I think Ricky could. Her face doesn't change a lot, but Emily is the opposite. If she killed her father, she wouldn't be able to look that sad. Little Richard acted sneaky until his father fell, and then he seemed surprised. Here's another thing. Dixon brought up a new video, one named Mamas. Watch the three mothers. The footage played with the former Mrs. Wedgworth framed on the screen. Richard voices, Richard's voice was in the background. They literally had their heads together as they looked up at their mutual baby daddy. Ricky's mother mimed gagging when Richard spoke about meeting Clarice. The others laughed. Emily's mother nodded slightly when her daughter's voice rang out. The three smiled, but those smiles faded when Richard announced his retirement. And when those around raised their glasses in a toast, they did not. Interesting, I said. What did you find out about them? The first Mrs. Wedgworth went to high school with Richard. They were married when they were 19 and Ricky was born a year later. They were married for seven years. She owns her own event planning business with Wedgworth Industries being her best client. It says so on her website. I studied the frozen image of the woman. Clarice said she didn't want the divorce that Richard did. She thinks she still wants him back. The second Mrs. Wedgworth, Dixon said, Emily's mother, she's a chef. She was working at a resort a lot like this one when she met her husband. They were also married for seven years. She started her business a year after Emily was born. She's an executive chef and caterer and Wedgworth Industries is her best customer, I said, finishing the sentence. Sorry, everybody. Allergy season. Wedgeworth Industries is her best customer. I'm picking up on the theme, I said. What about the third Mrs. Wedgeworth? She's a chemist, Dixon said, that worked for Wedgeworth. She was like, had 10 patents to her name for things I don't understand. She stopped working when little Richard was born and then went to work for a pharmaceutical company when her and Richard split. I don't get it, I said. Why hang around the guy you used to bang when he's banging somebody else? <coughs> I rub my eyes. Never mind. I'm too tired to think anymore. You did good, Dix. Let's pick it back up in the morning. Technically, Dixon said, it is morning. all about the bubbly. Six hours later, a taxi took me to the home of a young man who had worked on the roof level the night before. The simple two-story home with the bright orange walls seemed to bask in the sun. My knock was answered by a short woman with a full face and black hair twisted into a bun atop her head. I asked for Eduardo, who came when he heard his name. I introduced myself as security for the wife of the man who died the night before. He was not drunk, lady, Eduardo said. We have many guests, many guests who drink too much. The man, he was not one. I know Eduardo, I said, working to put him at ease. I was with him all night. I want to know about the champagne glasses. 
there was a tray set up for you to use. Eduardo nodded. See, si, the toast, as you say. He was planned to be at the fountain. My boss man brought up just two trays of glasses for the roof. At the time, I was to go to the bar and collect bottles and then fill the glasses. I did get the bottles, but when I go to pour, a man come and take it away from me. Eduardo, I said, can you tell me exactly what happened from the time you collected the champagne? I joined the other waiters at the bar, he said. Miguel was unpacking a case of bottles and lining them up. I'd taken three upstairs, set two bottles on my station, and I opened one. I remember the pop when it opened and the, como se dice, smoke? The smoke coming from the bottle. Then the big boss and his lady walked past me. That is when the man, he come to me. He had a glass with him and he set it on my tray and then take the bottle. I raised my hand to interrupt. Was the glass he set on the tray empty? No, he said. It was not empty, but almost. Eduardo held up his thumb and index fin finger with an inch between them. The man filled the four empty glasses and then filled his glass. He say something of being funny and then he take the tray to the veranda. I see the guests take the drinks, and so I take the bottle and more glasses to the other people. The man, he waved for me to give me back the tray with one glass still full. I set it on the stand and went to care for the other people again. That is when the big boss fall, and I went to the office with the other people. After that, I went back for the glasses to clean, and the tray was empty. No glasses, none. I was glad to know Dixon hadn't been seen. I asked a few more questions and then tipped him generously. My taxi then took me to a home that was more of a shack. It didn't bask in the sun, it roasted. All around was brushed so thick the word jungle could have been applied. But 20 feet around the house there was nothing but hard, packed dirt. The driver didn't like the look at the place, which showed his good sense. I paid him enough to get a promise of waiting for 15 minutes, but no more. I rang the high security bell and a big dog went mental on the other side of the door. I moved to the right, letting the camera see my face. The door opened and there was a scruffy man wearing an eye patch and a dog whose bark was much, much bigger than his bite. The legendary Queen of Diamonds, he said, pushing the storm door open for me. Welcome. I stepped into the chilled air and modern decor of a palace. One-eyed Jack, I said, smiling. The rumor of your demise was greatly exaggerated. I may say the same, he said. When the black called me, he said, referring to my friend Ian Black, who can get anything, anytime, anywhere. And Ian said your name. I tell him I will take care of this favor personally. I worked all night and have very puzzling results. He led me through his home. We walked through a code locked door. Dixon said you thought the champagne was good. It was very good, he said. Excellent vintage. If there are more bottles, perhaps you can help one or two come my way. I'll see what I can do, I said. But I meant it wasn't tainted? No, he said. The champagne itself is not. But in one glass, I found an odd residue. It is odd in that, by itself, it's used as a medicine. But this natural substance is famous because in the presence of certain natural acids, a very violent reaction occurs. It was called Mad Dog because the victims foamed at the mouth. The man who died did foam at the mouth, I said, and then described what I'd witnessed. One-eyed Jack frowned. 
This description fits, but I have no explanation on how it happened. There was no such acid in the glass or in the champagne. If both compounds would have been present in the glass, it would have foamed, I said, thinking out loud. The glass wasn't foaming, it looked completely normal. What if, what if the victim had ingested the acid separately, something he drank or something he ate? Would that have produced the same effect? Jack, Diamond's chemist friend, not my piano player, cocked his head. Possibly, he said. It is possible, it is impossible without testing to say if it would have killed or something less. It wouldn't matter how much was taken. It wasn't necessarily deadly, I asked. A small dose may have what? Caused someone to feel sick? Maybe vomit? Maybe, he said, shrugging again. Many medicines can kill in high doses, and many poisons are not deadly at low doses. My cell rang out with Dixon's ringtone. What's going on? I said as way of a greeting. All Mr. Wedgworth's kids are here with their mothers. They figured out that with Richard dead, the current Mrs. Wedgworth has controlling interest of the company. It's getting ugly. Keep them there, I told them. It's time to have a chat. Do I get to guess? Yep, this yeah. is the point where we break. Yeah. Do you do you want me to outline everybody? Or you just want to dive right in. Your mysteries are always the ones that I got no idea. You know, <laughs> everyone else's. I'm like, all right, you got like three suspects here. What you have six? You have six. Richard's the obvious guy, so it's not him. I okay. think it might be Richard's mom. Okay, let me let me outline them okay. for you. Okay, so three children. The eldest is Ricky, the one with the wardrobe stuck in the '80s. She's the one who got Daddy up to the balcony. The second child is Emily. She's the middle one, and she's the crier who needs to be invited to a fire drill. Yeah. She fussed over the food preparations. Okay. Little Richard, he's the youngest, and he's the deadbeat baby boy, and he played the game with the champagne glasses. Okay. 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 Now there's the three ex-wives. Uh-huh. So Ricky's mother was the high school sweetheart, and she runs an event planning company. Right, and she's not over him yet. And she's not over him, even though he's been married like three times since her. Uh-huh. Emily's mother uh, was a chef, or is a chef, with an executive catering company. I see, I see. And little Richard's mother is a chemist and works for a pharmaceutical company. All righty. Interesting, interesting. <laughs> well. One of them, two of them, three of them, five of them, six of them. I mean, okay, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. I have a feeling it was all of them. Mm-hmm. Just look at it. Look at it. All three of them have a motive. All right? Not a motive, but a way to have done it. You know, the chemist mm-hmm. makes sense how it could have gotten the chemicals, how she would have known that it would have killed him. Right. The chef, that's how they got it into the food. You know, they have to have an acid or something that got into him, right? Maybe she cooked it in there. Mm-hmm. The one that's actually, what? what are the, just the high school sweetheart? Yep. What does she do for a living? Uh, she's an event planner. She she hosts parties. And this is a party. And this is a party. I bet it's all three of them. I'll bet you it's all three ex-wives. All three ex-wives? Yeah. All I right. bet it's a murder on the Orient Express. You know, okay. it's them all. It's them all. I think I think it's all of them. All right. All right. Well, after we remind after we remind people to join our newsletter on the Prowl, it comes out every full moon. You can keep up with Jack and I. And remember to subscribe to this season of Mysteries to Die For. There's nine episodes. And, uh, yeah, 
Make sure you listen to them all and see if you can solve the mystery just like Jack before I reveal it. Yay. All right, here's the last chapter. It's called Three Card Monty. <gasps> I was right. I was right. Wow. <laughs> Get cocky, Jack. Okay. We haven't heard the story all yet. All right, all right. <laughs> I returned to the resort, climbing the stairs to the third floor. The sounds of birds and the nearby water proved the resort had put money into the walls. They completely contained the chaos of a family in crisis. Opening the door to the room Dixon and I shared, I was assaulted by voices competing to be the loudest. In the tumult was Dixon's voice ordering someone to step back. I hurried through the connecting door to find Dixon sandwiched between our client and the first Mrs. Wedgworth. I stalked across the marble floor, shoving bodies out of my way until I could wrap my hand around the bitch's hair. Jerking her away from Dixon, I sent her flying. The heels made for a runway slid over the slick floors and careened into high back chairs. She bounced off and tumbled down onto the coffee table. The room went silent. These were not people accustomed to physical violence. I looked at Dixon and the star-shaped red mark on his cheek. Who hit you? My voice was practically a growl. They didn't touch Clarice, he said with pride, not answering my question. I turned on the assembled. Which of you hit him? Ricky glared at me as she helped her mother off the coffee table. Emily had withdrawn to the far wall, her mouth open but unspeaking. And little Richard's gaze dashed around the room, his expression one of entertainment. Little Richard's mother stood behind her son's shoulder, using his body to separate her from the fray. Ricky's mother stood with her hands balled into fists, but she didn't move. And Ricky's mother, well, she had a lot to say. Who the hell are you to come into a family conversation? Get out. You aren't welcome here. She is, Clarice said with the authority of an alpha female. She and Dixon work for me. A strong knock came at the door. I opened it, admitting Detective Ramirez and two of his friends. Thank you for coming, I said. I believe you know everyone. What's going on here, Ricky asked. Why have you invited the police into this? Because one of you killed your father. We're going to have it out right here, right now. Clarice, Dixon, you sit at the bar. The rest of you take a seat at the dining room table. Little Richard snorted. We don't have to do what you say. Ramirez stepped toward him. Sit, senor, he said quietly. His words and his presence didn't broadcast a threat, but little Richard read the subtext. Huh, who knew he was that astute? Diamond lady, Ramirez said as his men took up positions on either side of the table. I stood at the head. To my left was Ricky, then her mother, then Emily. Emily's mother sat across. Next to her was little Richard's mother, which put the darling boy on my right. Richard Wedgworth was poisoned, I said. He, how, Emily asked. We all ate and drank together. That isn't true, is it, little Richard? I looked down at the man-child next to me. Little Richard squirmed as a child would under parental interrogation. It wasn't anything that would kill anyone. It should have just made him puke. Why would you do that, Emily asked. Why would you want to embarrass Dad like that? He wasn't supposed to drink it. Little Richard glanced over his shoulder at Clarice. Clarice was. 
It was supposed to be great. She was going to throw up after Dad's big speech and everyone would forever remember puking Clarice. When are you going to grow up, little Richard? Ricky threw her hands up. Where did you even get something like that? I gave it to him, little Richard's mother said before I had the chance to call her out. There was nothing harmful in it. The syrup is used medicinally to counteract overdoses by forcing patients to vomit. She put her arm around her son. Whatever Richard died of had nothing to do with spiking his champagne. Not true, I said. Well, it is true that alone the syrup is medicinal. Richard did not consume it alone. He drank it after he ate copious amounts of vinegar-laden bruschetta. Emily surged to her feet. My food did not kill my father. I waved back the policeman who stepped close to Emily. Why had you selected to add that particular dish to the menu? She slunk back into her chair, eyes on the table. I, I wanted to do something special for Dad. He was announcing his retirement, and I wanted... You knew, too? Ricky roared at her sister. Oh, I get it. You wanted to put in a plug to be named CEO. You've always been such a kiss-ass. You knew? Little Richard asked of both. Both of you knew? Why didn't I know? His sisters chuckled, as did their mothers. Little Richard's mother did not laugh. Where did you get the recipe from, I asked, focusing the conversation. Did you create it, Emily? Yes, Emily said, I mean, with my mother's help. I wanted to do something with artichokes, a favorite of Dad's, and we came up with the bruschetta. My original version was a little bit bland, so Mom helped me punch it up. With balsamic vinegar, I said. Oh, God, little Richard's mother blanched. Your harmless syrup mixed with your harmless vinegar, I said to Emily's mother, created a deadly combination. One intended to kill Clarice. One that did kill Richard. The officers moved behind the two women. Wait, Emily's mother said. I didn't know anything about the syrup. Did you, Emily? Emily shook her head vigorously. I knew Dad was going to make a speech, and it was supposed to be at the fountain in the center of the atrium. I changed the location, Ricky said. The upstairs balcony would make Dad look more regal. She looked down at her mother, sadness in her eyes. Those were your exact words. Little Richard's mother dropped her head into her hands. She suggested the gag. I came up with a list of compounds that can do it and recommended the syrup. Emily's mother reached across the table and covered her daughter's hands. She suggested that we make something special for your father and she reminded me of his fondness for balsamic vinegar. Ricky had to clear her throat twice before she could speak. Mom, did you kill dad? I would never harm your father. Ricky's mom turned to me, her chin high. That woman is a threat to my daughter and to me, to all the children here and their mother. Hello. Okay, so as you might have noticed, this is not the podcast. I mean, it is the podcast, but it just stopped. Like, we were in the middle of the word, and, you know, mothers just cut off. It's weird. All right, so I don't know what happened. It stopped recording, so we're going we're gonna to keep recording, all right? Because we do these live. Yeah, we do it live until it stops recording, and we have to cut and do it live twice but we're not gonna cut it did cut it cut out it cut out it wasn't our fault it was uh technology all right so i'm gonna shut up start playing and we're gonna finish the story okay bye ricky had to clear her throat twice before she could speak mom did you kill dad i would never harm your father ricky's mom turned to me her chin high 
That woman is a threat to my daughter and to me, to all the children here and their mothers. If Clarice said jump, Richard did it. She turned him away from our businesses and she forced little Richard's mother to get a job. You wanted more than to undermine Clarice's standing, I said. You wanted her out of the way. Your first three attempts failed and you just couldn't let it go. Ricky's mother shook her head. I, I just wanted things to go back to the way they were. She looked around the table. I did it for all of us. One by one, her family turned away from her. But she wasn't alone. Detective Ramirez was, and his friends were with her. She walked out the door wearing tiny, uh, brand new shiny silver bracelets that accented her sprayed-on tan. Inside, the room was filled with a deafening silence. What was there to say? Clarice came to the head of the table, stepping in front of me. I'm the new CEO of Wedgworth Industries, she said. I inherited Richard's share, which, combined with mine, gives me 60% control. I'm not going to make fast changes, but we are going to make changes. This company is going to outlive this moment as a tribute to Richard. We'll close for a week, out of respect, but I expect the three of you, she looked each of the children, to be in the boardroom first thing Monday morning. We've got work to do. Dixon and I stayed while the children and their remaining mothers made plans for an immediate return to the States. When the last left, Clarice turned to me. Did you know Ricky's mother was behind the attempts on my life? No, I said. I first suspected the three children worked together, but between the surveillance and seeing them interact, I knew the odds of them pulling off working together were nil. My next theory was the three mothers. Each of their expertise was needed to pull off the poisoning, and they had a unified dislike of you. It hadn't occurred to me that Emily and little Richard's mother were manipulated by Ricky's mother. Don't be too hard on yourself, Clarice said. They didn't know they were being manipulated either. Under the conditions, it's hard for me to say thank you. So I guess I'll just say, I told you so. Wow, it's just as good the second time we do it. <laughs> so we've already done all this, so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do it again. So uh, I'll read the script that we already have prepared. So Jack, <laughs> what was that? Uh, you have some fun facts for us? Oh yes, I have a few fun well, facts for us. No, no, no. Are no, we no, going no. straight into the facts? Yeah, we'll go right into the facts. We you don't know, have Cosimo. a script. Cosimo. Yeah, we're totally reading off a script here. Yeah, so <laughs> Cosimo, uh, first settled by the Mayans. Did you know that? We learned that when we went on a tour of the Mayan ruins. It was the temple to the moon right wow it was you know what else is pretty cool no Cozumel also pronounced as Cozumel like spelled C-A-C-U-Z-A-M-I-L translates from in Mayan to land of the swallow and there were there were swallows everywhere there were swallows everywhere oh. Cozumel is also known as a destination island like little area if you want to go you know deep sea diving because it's mm. part of the Really? I just had to pull it up. Mesoamerican Reef System, which is the second largest reef system next to the Great Barrier Reef, which is like wildly more popular. Um, I don't well, know. There were a well lot known. of people around there diving. Yeah, but more well known. Okay. So if you're not if, if you're not dive, into diving, yeah, you you've know heard about of the Barrier Reef. You've heard about the Great Barrier. You don't know anything about the Mesoamerican. Um. Yeah, I think that's all the facts I said. I were, there were so many palm trees. There were so. Many, we're going to talk about. We're going to do the palm tree forest 
because it was again. awesome. So I'd only ever really seen palm trees like in Florida where it was one here, one there. And I'm kind of like, those are just like big sticks. Why are those impressive? And then we go to Cozumel and there's like square miles of solid palm trees. And it was like, okay, I get it. Those are pretty cool. Yeah. Oh. So does the logic hold up? Well, I mean, when you think about it, it does. And then we, we, we're, we're going to talk about the liability of all these people. So think about it, you know. These people, they accidentally poisoned, you know, Poppy Richard here. They didn't mean to, but they still did it. Well, I mean, the one woman meant to, but the other thought they were just going for a gag, trying to make somebody sick just so that they'd be ever, forever be talked about. Oh, remember that time, Clarice? By the way, I should not pick characters whose names I have trouble saying when I have to say them 90 times. Clarice, Clarice, Clarice. Clarice. You know, but they just thought, oh, you know, it would be funny. For years, everybody will talk about how Clarice threw up in Cozumel. That's the stupidest, like, gag. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> <laughs> That's bad. Anyway. Um, but yeah, no, I suppose in a court of law, they did feed them something that killed them. Yeah. So it's kind of like, is it second hand, second degree? You killed a guy, but you didn't mean to. It's like drunk driving. Well, yeah. I mean not, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is why we don't write police procedurals. <laughs> it's it's like drinking with the intention of drunk driving, you know. No, I know. All right. Well, <laughs> no, no, no. All right. Um, but but yeah, the your point was that they were not intending to kill him, but they still did. They still did. They still played a role in it. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that they're going to be wearing Gucci a whole lot longer. Nope. Mm. I mean, they never were. They're fictional characters. That is true. That is true. <laughs> so um, uh, did you enjoy this one? I did. It was quite interesting. It was fun writing a, a diamond short. So I hope everybody enjoyed that. I'm not sure where this fits in the overall trilogy because the books in the trilogy go back to back to back. And this somehow miraculously fits Just in between. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's you know, taking from the Marvel verse where you can just kind of make time wherever you want time. Exactly. That's that's what they did with half the movies. Yeah. So there's an extra weekend somewhere in that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's wrap up this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Support our show by subscribing, telling a mystery lover about us, and giving us a five-star review. Become a member of our Body Bag Brigade by financially supporting the season with the one-time donation. Pay what you can. Interested in advertising on Mysteries to Die For? Check out our website. Information is in the show notes and on our website. Mysteries to Die For is written by T.G. Wolf with contribution from Jack Wolf. No Luck Like Bad Luck was written by T.G. Wolf and edited by Kyra Jacobs. Music and production are by Jack Wolf and episode art is by T.G. Wolf. By the way, the picture on the episode art is one that I took when we were in Cozumel. So check that out. It was inspiration for the setting. All right, Jack, I am going to shut up and let you take us out. I, I have control over the, the keyboard. You ready? I'm going to have fun with that. I Oh, that was really loud. Okay, I'm going to have epic. to fix that. It didn't the, uh, sound loud in our mic, in our it earphones. It does not, but this has it very big. All right, let's end the episode. Bye. Bye.